Our passage this morning comes from the book of Galatians, chapter 5, starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, And things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The word of the Lord. So we are in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And uh, as we've been saying every single week, this letter is all about one big question, and the question is, what is the gospel? Uh, and especially as we've been moving towards the, uh, the, the latter part of the letter, one of the things that we're especially seeing is that Paul is beginning to get very practical with the gospel, not just showing us what the gospel is, but how it actually applies to our lives, how it actually changes our lives. So this passage in particular is one of the most famous passages in the Bible. We could probably spend weeks here. Um, but we're just going to spend one week. And, and I want to drill down on one thing in particular because this very famous passage in the fruit of the Spirit touches one of the most fundamental, um, intimate, and vulnerable parts of our lives. What is that? Well, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you ever experience a gap between the way you should be living and the way you are living? Or let me put it another way. Are there things about your life you want to change? And let me be very clear about that question. I'm not talking about changing the circumstances of your life. I'm not asking if you want to be richer or if you want to live in a different house or have a different spouse or maybe have a spouse at all or a boyfriend or girlfriend. I'm not asking if you want to be more successful or get better grades or be in a different school or have a different set of friends. I'm not talking about changing your circumstances. We're talking about changing your life. Are there things in your life that need to change? My guess is that if we were having this conversation one-on-one, most of us would probably say, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There there are things that need to change in my life. And a lot of us feel that way, but no matter how hard we try, 
we, we struggle in life. We struggle with all kinds of things. We're worried, we're anxious, we're afraid, we're angry, we're bitter, we're ashamed, we're lonely, we're addicted. Um, maybe we're prideful or selfish or greedy or apathetic. Maybe we're lazy or maybe we don't uh, take enough time off. Maybe we work too hard. There's all kinds of struggles in our life, things that we struggle deeply with. And we say, I want to change. I need to change, but I can't, and I don't, know, I don't even know how. I don't even know how to begin. If that's you, this passage has answers for you because this passage, as I said, is all about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, at one level, you could say, oh, character, virtue, and that's right, but understand something. We're going to see this. We are not necessarily talking about moral self-improvement. The fruit of the Spirit results in character. It is character, it is virtue, but it's not moral self-improvement. What is it? What is the fruit of the Spirit? And why do we need it so badly? If you struggle in your life to become the person that you know you're supposed to be, but you're not, this passage shows you how it happens by showing us all about the fruit of the Spirit. And I want us to see three things about the fruit of the Spirit this morning, okay? Three questions. Why do we need it? What is it? And how does it grow? Okay, fruit of the Spirit, why do we need it, what is it, and how does it actually grow in our lives, all right? So first, why do we need the fruit of the Spirit? Paul shows us, interestingly enough, right at the beginning of the passage, that everyone experiences this struggle with becoming the person you know you're supposed to be, but you aren't. Everyone experiences this struggle, especially Christians. So if you look at verse 17, he says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So essentially Paul is saying there's a war inside every single Christian. There's a struggle. We all struggle with this. The the Christian life is a struggle against an enemy. Now what is the nature of this enemy? One of the things that's really interesting is you don't really find out how strong this enemy is until you start fighting it. Uh, What is the nature of this enemy? Paul calls it a couple of times in this passage. He says, the desires of the flesh. What is that? I I like the way the old King James Version translates it, the lusts of the flesh. And, you know, when we hear that, oh, we hear a certain, you know, connotation when we hear it like that. When we hear that, we think, oh, I know what Paul is talking about. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, he's talking about physical appetites. He's talking about bodily things, especially he's talking about sex. I know what Paul is talking about. And if we think that, we couldn't be farther from the truth. Because what is the real nature of our enemy? What's the nature of our struggle, of our deepest problems in life? Well, first of all, the problem is not desire itself. As though there's something wrong with, with, with desire in and of itself. So look again at verse 17. Paul says, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Now that word desire is a very important word in the Bible. It shows up a lot in the New Testament. Uh, it doesn't so much mean evil desire as it means inordinate desire or over desire or desire on overdrive. That's what that word means. Now, most of the time when the Bible uses this word, it is using it in a negative sense. That's why so often this word is actually translated lust, okay? But not all of the time. Because notice in that same verse that 
that the Holy Spirit can have this kind of desire as well. This, this over-desire, this desire and overdrive, it's, it's like a passionate, eager desire. It's like a consuming desire. And although when it shows up in our lives, a lot of the times it can be negative and harmful, desire in and of itself is not bad. Passionate, eager desire in and of itself is not a bad thing because the Holy Spirit can have that kind of desire too. So what is the problem? Well, notice also that the problem is not the body or physical things like food, sex, or drink. That is a very dualistic uh, notion of spirituality, like spiritual things are good and physical things are bad. That is not a biblical view. Although very frequently people think, oh, that is the Bible's view of things. And especially because when we hear phrases like the lusts of the flesh, we think that's what Paul is talking about, physical appetites. So and at first glance, this passage might seem to confirm that because look at verse 19. Paul gives us uh, a list of what he calls these are the works of the flesh. And so look at the first three things on that list, sexual immorality, impurity, sensual, sensuality. So those things, those sound pretty physical, and they are. And then you look at the last two things on the list, drunkenness and orgies. You know, it's, I mean, it's sex, drugs, rock and roll. It's very physical stuff. But then look at everything in between that. We just mentioned five things. Everything else on the list, 10 whole things. Look at those things. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Those aren't physical things. Those are internal things. Yeah, they manifest themselves through our actions, but those are things that originate in the heart. And Paul is saying, these are the works of the flesh. So if flesh doesn't mean physical things necessarily, then what does flesh mean? You know, if you were here with us last week, we talked about this. The way the Bible uses the word flesh can mean different things depending on the context. Sometimes when the Bible uses the word flesh, it's just talking about human beings, people especially people in our kind of finite, limited nature. It's not saying human beings are bad, just limited, okay? Um, other times, the Bible uses the word flesh to describe something else. Now, what is that? Because that's the way Paul is using the word here. Well, look at verse 16. Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, okay? Now look down at verse 18, Paul says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In each one of those verses, notice Paul is talking about either walking or being led by the Spirit. So if you had a pen or a pencil handy, I would, I would even say, circle that word walk and circle that word led and draw a line between those two things. Paul's talking about the same concept, walking or being led by the Spirit, but then he's contrasting that with something else. What is it? In each one of those two verses, he calls it something different. In verse 16, he says, the desires of the flesh. And in verse 18, he calls it being under the law. And if you were to take that pen and circle the word flesh and circle the word law and draw a line between those two things, we see that Paul is talking about the same thing here. The flesh and the law are two different ways of describing the same thing. They're two different ways of describing a basic approach to life. Again, we were talking about this. The last two weeks we've been talking about this. We've, we've said this is an operating principle. 
This is a basic default approach to life, okay? And it goes like this. This approach to life says, if I'm really gonna get the deepest desires of my heart, then the only way that's gonna happen is if I make it happen. I have to make it happen. So for instance, uh, a law-based approach to salvation would say this. If I'm a good person, God will love me. Effort equals outcome, okay? Law-based approach to salvation. Or a law-based approach to fulfillment or satisfaction would say, if I work really hard, then good things will happen to me and I will be a happy person. Okay, effort equals outcome. That is a human performance-based approach to life so that whatever it is you're looking for, whatever it is you desire, whatever it is your heart is really looking for, the operating principle of the flesh or the law says that you have to work for it. You have to perform for it. And you see now why it's called the flesh because it's all based on human self-effort, human power, human achievement. It's a human performance-based approach to life. It's an operating principle. And when you put those two things together, that, that overwhelming, consuming desire with this flesh law-based approach to life, it's only when you put both of those things together that you begin to see what our real problem is. Our real problem is not that we have normal-sized desires for bad things, as if the things themselves were what the problem was. No. Our problem is not normal-sized desires for bad things. Our problem is oversized desires for really, really good things. Our problem is that our desires, our loves, are out of order. So it's no problem to love baseball, but if you love baseball more than your spouse, you've got a problem. And it's not wrong to love um, recognition, but if you love recognition more than you love your friends, you'll throw your friends under the bus in order to get the recognition. Our problem is not the things that we love. Our problem is that our loves are out of order. And friends, disordered loves lead to distorted lives. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives. So look again at this list in verse 19. Paul is naming the works of the flesh. Look at that list. It's full of distortions, right? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, psychological distortions, emotional distortions, relational distortions, social distortions. That list is full of distortions. Where do those distortions come from? They come from when we desire something When we want something really, really badly and we're going out of our way to make it happen, we'll throw anything or anyone else under the bus to get it. And when that happens, if we're prevented, if we're frustrated, if we're blocked in the achievement of that desire, what happens? We fall apart, we melt down, we blow up, we check out. All of the distortions on this list, that's what happens. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives. So have you ever seen one of those movies, like there's dozens of them, movies about somebody who is really devoted to a cause, but then that devotion turns into obsession and they end up kind of like the rest of their life falls apart because they're so devoted to this cause and it's probably a really, really good cause, but everything else has to take second place to it. Um, I've seen dozens of these. I was trying to think of the most recent one I remember seeing was a movie called Flash of Genius. It's about the guy who invented the intermittent windshield wiper. And he had this idea, I mean, we, we take these things for granted, right? I mean, you know, that it doesn't just keep going, it like actually pauses, you know, anyway. 
The guy who invented this, he brought it to the major motor companies and they, they didn't buy his idea, but instead they implemented the idea, his invention in, in thousands and thousands of cars. They basically stole the idea from him. And, and he, over the next several years, decades of his life, uh, was engaged in, in a series of legal battles to, to basically you know, win compensation and recognition for the fact that he's the guy that invented the intermittent windshield wiper. And he was so devoted to this cause that it, it ruined every other part of his life, his family, his children, his health, his money, his career, his home, his health, everything. He sacrificed everything for the sake of this really, really good cause. But that, that devotion turned into obsession. And, and when you see movies like these, I know I do, you want to grab hold of those characters and you say, don't you see that your devotion to this cause is absolutely ruining your life and the lives of everyone around you? Because ultimately, it's really not about the cause. It's about you. Your devotion has turned into obsession, and you'll throw everything under the bus in order to get it. Our deepest problem is not the things we love. It's that those loves are out of order. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives. And when we see that, we, we kind of realize what's the point of the first point here. Why do we need the fruit of the Holy Spirit? It's because we don't have the power to transform our own lives. And our human-based efforts to secure the deepest desires of our hearts only make the problem worse because that's the problem to begin with. Disordered loves lead to distorted lives. We take really good things, things like romance and sex or comfort and pleasure, or money and success, or recognition and approval, or control or power, or even a really, really good cause. We take all kinds of good things, and whatever it is, we take that into the center of our life, and we put it in the place of God, and then we, we will throw everything else under the bus in order to get that thing. We start pushing ourselves, driving ourselves, ruining ourselves, in order to achieve that desire. That's why we need the fruit of the Holy Spirit because we don't have the power to fix that in our own power. So that's point number one. This is why we need it, but point number two. What is it? What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? There's actually a lot to see here. Again, more than we can possibly look at in one week, but let me just point out three aspects of the Holy Spirit. It's organic, it's unified, and it's gradual. I know our second point has three points, <laughs> but I'll be quick. It's organic, first of all. Notice Paul contrasts the work of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. That's deliberate language. Think about this with me. Can, can human beings create life? No. We can build things. We can put a seed in the ground, build a trellis, water the soil, but we can't create life. We can build all kinds of things. We can build buildings. We can create technology. But whatever we're working on, as soon as we stop working on it, it stops growing, right? So for instance, you build a house and whatever material you're using, brick or stone or wood, you're adding these materials on top of one another. You walk away at the end of the day, that house stops growing because it's mechanical growth from the outside, okay? The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, brings organic growth from the inside. And that's what Paul is saying the fruit of the Holy Spirit is like. This is not something we work on from the outside. This is the very life and power of God that he implants on the inside. 
and it grows on its own. We do not create that. We do not achieve that. It's something that we can only receive by grace. And by the way, that's the difference between the gospel and basically every other approach to life, every other religion, every other philosophy, every other ethical system, every other approach to life. It's the difference between the gospel and that. Because every other approach to life says, here are the rules, here are the techniques, here are the principles, here's a book, here's a conference. You go, you take these principles, you take these techniques, you plug them into your life, you apply these things, and voila, out comes a transformed life. And we all know it never works, no matter how much we try. The gospel, on the other hand, is not mechanical growth from the outside. It's organic growth from the inside. This is not something we do. This is something that God does inside of us. Yes, there are things we need to do to cooperate and cultivate and facilitate and work with this growth. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. But, but we have to understand that the gospel is not a self-help program. The gospel is not a self-improvement program. It's the power of God implanted in your life. Okay? So that's the first thing. It's organic. But secondly, the fruit of the Spirit is unified. So for instance, every book you will read on this passage, every commentator, every scholar, they all say the same thing when they look at this. They all point out the fact that when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, he does not talk about fruits plural. He talks about the fruit singular. That means that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things, those are not many different fruits. Those are all one fruit with many different aspects. Okay, so it's kind of like a diamond, if I could change the metaphor. You know, a diamond has multiple facets. And, and depending on how you're holding it and depending on which way the light is shooting through it, you're looking at these different facets, these different aspects, and you will see different um, colors. You will see different beauties, different glories in this diamond, depending on which way you're looking at it, depending on which facet you're looking through. The fruit of the Spirit is the same way. It's multifaceted. And here's what this means. It means that you're either growing in all of the fruit or you're growing in none of it. So for instance, you could look at this list and you could say, well, I feel like I've, you know, this past year I've really been growing in um, patience, but you know, I, I really still kind of work on that kindness thing. You're either growing in all of it or you're growing in none of it. If, if you think you're growing in patience but not growing so much in kindness, really what that means is you're not doing as well in the kindness as you think you are. Or for instance, look at those words, faithfulness and gentleness. Faithfulness could also be translated boldness or courage. Um, gentleness could be translated as meekness or humility. Here's the thing. A lot of times we mistake our natural personality tendencies for fruit of the Spirit. So some of you are what we would call more you know, faithful, bold, confident type personalities. You always do what needs to be done. You always say what needs to be said. And you don't really care what people think. You're going to do it. You're going to say it. And if people get offended, if people get hurt, well, tough luck. You're faithful. You're bold. You just put it out there. It would be a mistake to think that that faithfulness of yours is a fruit of the Spirit. Because what you're really doing is you're booting off your natural tendency to faithfulness, but you're not really growing in the whole Spirit. To grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit would mean that that natural inborn courage or boldness that you have is actually beginning to be tempered by love and patience and kindness and self-control and all the other aspects of the fruit, okay? Or if you're a more a gentle type person, you're malleable, you're sweet, you get along with everybody, 
but you have a really, really hard time. You're deathly afraid of saying hard things to people that really, really need to hear it. Why? Because you're afraid they won't like you. You're afraid of conflict. That's not the fruit of the Spirit, your gentleness. That's, that's you booting off your natural personality that you're just naturally a kind of a sweet, gentle soul, but you're not bold, you're not faithful, you're not courageous. The fruit of the Spirit growing in that means that you're gonna begin growing in all of the fruit so that your natural gentleness will also be tempered by love and faithfulness and courage and things like that. Do you see how this works? You're either growing in all of the fruit or you're growing in none of the fruit. And, and, and that leads us actually to the last thing that, that we see about the fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's organic it's unified, but it's also gradual. It's gradual. Think about this. A lot of times, if you're a Christian, it's easy to look at your life and feel like it's all struggle. Um, there's no growth, and I'm just a horrible Christian because I don't feel like I've really been growing, and, and that can be really discouraging. But listen, how does fruit grow? Really, really slowly. For instance, if you walked out to a baby forest every day for a month or even a year and we're looking for growth, would you see it? No, at least none that you could perceive visibly. But come back in 10 years and you'd be like, whoa, where did that come from? It grows really, really slowly. It's going on, but not, not so quickly that you can see it. So on the one hand, that, that should encourage you. Um, growth in the spirit is slow. It's gradual. We should expect to struggle we should expect it to be difficult because we have a real enemy and we're, we're fighting against that enemy. We should expect it. But on the other hand, it's not an excuse for no growth. And that's where the challenge is for us. Here's, I would suggest that you can have people in your lives that can help you examine yourselves for fruit because we should be examining ourselves. Am I growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Am I growing in the character of God? There are people in your life that know you really well. They can see. <laughs> Do you have people like that in your life that you trust enough to ask, hey, how am I doing? Do you see fruit in my life over the past year, over the past five years? Ask that person. It is really, really important that we examine ourselves for fruit so that we are able to get an assessment of whether we're actually growing in it because we should, on the one hand, expect struggle, expect challenge, but on the other hand, we should expect to find some progress, some fruit of the Spirit in our holy lives. So we've seen why we need the fruit. We don't have the power to transform our lives. And disordered loves lead to distorted lives. And if we're going to find renewal for our lives, we have to find a renewal to the disordered loves in our lives. And the fruit of the Spirit is the only way that can happen. And secondly, we've seen what the fruit of the Spirit is. It's organic. It's gradual. It's unified. Okay. But lastly, how does this fruit actually grow in our lives? How does it actually get cultivated? That's our last point. And especially, we need to ask, what part are we called to play in the cultivation of this fruit because we do have a role to play here. What is it? Uh, let me just suggest a couple of things to you. At the very end of the passage, Paul tells us two things, that we crucify the flesh and we keep in step with the Spirit, okay? Crucify the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? First, we crucify the flesh. Um, and here's where we need to be careful with this. A lot of times, again, when we hear something like that, it's really easy to think, Oh, when Paul says crucify the flesh, what he's, what he's saying is restrain ourselves, discipline ourselves. We've got to bring more discipline, more self-effort 
into our lives in order to say no to all those desires of the flesh. And if we think that, then we're falling into a, a mistake. Because remember, what is Paul warning the Galatians about? If you've been with us through this series, you know. Paul is warning the Galatians about legalistic rule-keeping as a means of salvation. He's warning them against getting a lot of rules, a lot of discipline, a lot of um, regulations and principles and techniques into their lives as a means of salvation. That's what he's warning them against. He's warning them against this operating principle that I'm going to achieve the salvation and the fulfillment and the meaning and the significance of my life. I'm going to achieve all of that in my own strength. So I'm going to get really obedient. I'm going to get really disciplined. I'm going to obey all of these rules and laws. And Paul is saying, that's the flesh. And I'm warning you against that. So if Paul says, crucify the flesh, if all he means is morally restrain yourself, <laughs> discipline yourself, then essentially he's, he's telling them to do the very thing that he's been warning them against this whole letter. And that can't be it. So what is he talking about when he says crucify the flesh? Well, think about this for a moment. What happens when you crucify something? One thing that happens is it's nailed up in visible sight for everybody to see. And I want to suggest that that image actually helps us a little bit when we talk about what it means for us to crucify the flesh. And here's what I mean by that. We, we have to remember what the flesh is, okay? It's, the flesh is this operating principle of performance-based approach to life, okay? The flesh takes good things and turns them into ultimate things. The flesh is a human-centered way of seeking the deepest desires of our heart. So crucifying the flesh means that, that we have to actually crucify that operating principle in our life. How do we do that? Well, let me suggest a way to begin. It's just a question. What do you really want? What is your heart really looking for? Ask yourself that question. What good thing do you have a tendency to put in the place of God? Is it romance or children or money or status or success or power or approval or recognition or control or pleasure? What is it for you? It's something. Do you know what it is? So that when you're in the midst of that struggle, whatever your struggle looks like, you know, you're angry, you're anxious, you're worried, you're afraid, you're depressed, you're lonely, you're struggling in life. In the midst of that struggle, I would encourage you to stand back and just ask yourself, wait a minute, what is my heart really looking for? In the midst of this struggle, just stop and say, wait, what is my heart really looking for in the midst of this struggle? And when you get an answer to that question, then you begin meditating. You crucify the flesh. That means you bring the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to bear upon this frustrated desire in your life. And you begin asking yourself the question, how is Jesus Christ the ultimate fulfillment of this desire in my life? So for instance, maybe you, you come up with the answer, it's approval. That's what my heart's really looking for. Okay, how is Jesus Christ the ultimate fulfillment of the approval that my heart is really seeking? You know, do you know how that is? The cross says to each and every one of us, you're a mess. <laughs> you're so lost and, and sinful that God had to send Jesus to die on a cross in order to save you. The cross shows you the lengths necessary that God had to go to in order to save you. But don't you realize if that's true? Oh my goodness. The cross doesn't just show you the lengths necessary to go in order to save you. It shows you the, the lengths that Jesus was willing to go in order to save you. He didn't just hop and skip over a star or two. He crossed the infinite cosmos 
in order to come to earth and die on a cross in order to love you, in order to pour out his approval, his recognition, his blessing upon your life to say, you are my dear beloved child. I love you so much. Here's what I was willing to go through in order to show you how much I love you. There is no approval like that. And when you have that approval in your life, all of a sudden, the, the approval of other people, the recognition of your peers, all the things that have you so worried and so anxious, all the criticism, all the ways that people are talking behind your back, all of a sudden, that just kind of shrinks in comparison. Why? Because you've got the approval of the God of the universe overflowing in your heart, and you see it most powerfully on the cross of Jesus Christ. Or say, maybe the thing that your heart is really looking for is control or security. A lot of people really, you know, that describes you. How is Jesus Christ the ultimate fulfillment of all the control and security that your heart is looking for? Again, what does the cross show us about that? Think about it. On the cross, there is nothing more out of control, more powerless than being stripped naked and having your hands and your feet nailed to a cross. Think about how destabilizing, how insecure, how out of control that felt to Jesus at that very moment. There's nothing more out of control than that, but do you think the cross was a mistake? Do you think it's like, you know, Jesus came to earth and, and his whole life, he's... Um, He's traveling through life and he's trying to do good and teach people how to be good people. And then at the very end of his life, whoops, you know, things kind of spin horribly out of control and he ends up getting crucified like it was some horrible mistake. No. The cross was planned from the foundation of the world. What looks to us like a horrible mistake was, was, was written, woven into the narrative of history. It is the central event in all of history. That moment... On the cross, when it looks like everything was most out of control, is the moment in history when Jesus was most in control. And that means that he, at that moment, was securing your life, securing your well-being, securing your flourishing, securing all the little details of your life so that when your life feels like it's out of control and everything is spinning out of your control, that means you can know that, wait a minute, no, no, Jesus died on the cross, he is in control of my life. And so when things feel like they're slipping out of control in my life, no, there's the control. There's the security that my heart is really looking for. Do you see how this works? To crucify the flesh does not mean moral self-improvement in our lives. It means that you begin to starve the operating principle of the flesh by feeding your heart what it's really looking for in the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the first thing, crucify the flesh. But secondly, keep in step with the Spirit. There, there's one more way that we can, we can help cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in our life, and that's by keeping in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Paul, if you notice in this passage, he uses a lot of language like walking with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, um, keeping in step with the Spirit. There, there's a concept here. Now, that word keeping in step actually is a very interesting word. It's not the normal word for just walking, like normal walking. It's a, it's a very specific word. In fact, it was a military image. The word was very frequently used to refer to soldiers who were falling in line and marching in step with one another. So their steps are just laid out for them, and they're just letting their feet be conformed to the steps or the path that's already been laid out in front of them. They're keeping in step. So what does that mean? How, how do you keep in step with the Holy Spirit? I want to suggest that you're actually already 
doing it. What I mean is you're already keeping in step with something because your hearts are looking for something. Your hearts are desiring something. Your heart has set its ultimate love on something in this world. I don't know what it is, but you are loving something as ultimate. And guess what? Those loves didn't just happen by accident. The deepest loves of your heart don't just happen by accident. You are being trained to love something. You are being shaped to love something. All the little habits, all the little rituals, all the little details and things that fill our daily lives throughout our weeks and months and years, they're things that shape the deepest loves of our hearts. And you are being trained to love something as ultimate. Already, it's already happening to you. And And if I were going to name some things, one of the first things that I would name is, you know, we've got these things that fill our lives, these screens, (laughs) whether it's a TV screen or a computer screen or actually more uh, frequently nowadays, these tablets or smartphones. And listen, I am not saying they're bad things. If we make that mistake and we say, oh, it's the thing, then we're falling back into the same mistake that we make before. It's not the things that are bad. It's our over over inordinate desires for those things that take any good thing and put it in the place of God. These things can shape our lives. They train our lives. They're not bad in and of ourselves, but they are doing something to you. For instance, you know, swipe, swipe, tap, tap, all these little rituals. What is that training you to love? That one thing is it's training you to love or to value instant gratification over patience. And that's not a bad thing. Having something immediately available to you is not a bad thing. But when you're being trained, we, we just, we're not even thinking about it, but it's happening to us. And, and please, please don't hear me saying the screens are a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying. I have screens. I have a smartphone. I'm using one right now. But what are they doing to us? How are they shaping us? Ask this question. How is this shaping my life? What is this training me to love? There are all kinds of things. Maybe you're one of those you know, rare people that doesn't actually have a smartphone or a tablet or a TV or I don't know. Like You don't have any of those things. But you do have other things, other habits, other rituals in your lives, and they're shaping you. The books and the magazines that you read, the music or the films that you consume, those things shape us. Um, the, the mall shapes us. The gym shapes us in more ways than just physically. (laughs) Newspapers, um, media, all of these things shape us. They have a shaping effect on our lives. And if we're not aware of us, then then we are passively, mindlessly being trained or shaped to love something as ultimate. And the way we keep in step with the Spirit is to realize that that's happening in our lives already. And then what we need to do is to to cultivate counter-rituals or counter-habits in our lives that will actually offset the shaping rituals that train us to love things that we put in the place of God. So what that means is this. One very simple one way that you uh, can cultivate new habits in your life is getting a really, really large amount of scripture in your life on a daily basis. And, and yeah, I acknowledge that requires discipline, but understand that the discipline required is not a means of salvation, it's a response to salvation. That the more Jesus and his love for you is growing in your heart, the more you want to actually read his word. Do you realize that that has a shaping influence in your life? Look at Jesus' life. Every other word out of his mouth literally was either some reference or allusion or quote from scripture. 
Jesus himself was profoundly shaped by Scripture so that when you're walking through life, the more you're shaped by Scripture, the more it, it just naturally asserts itself in your life. So you're not even you know, necessarily quoting Bible verses as you go throughout the day, but it has so shaped you that the way you respond, the way you act in life when you're confronted with situations, it's the fruit of the Spirit growing inside of you. Or, so scripture, another one is just worship, just showing up to worship on Sundays. The things that we do here are intended to have a shaping effect in your life. We didn't invent them at Central West End Church. We're practicing things that Christians have been practicing for 2,000 years. And, you know, one thing I will say is we were very intentional about the fact that we don't have screens here. And again, I'm not saying screens are bad, but we want one place in your life, in your week, to be able to come and not have that be the dominant way that forms our shape of discourse. That we would come here and say, for, for one and a half hours out of my life in a week, I'm, I'm not going to have any screens in my life. I'm going to let my heart and my mind be shaped by something else. It also... Um, really saves on the setup and tear down. <laughs> but what we do here in worship shapes us. That's a part of the weekly rhythm of your life. Having time, regular time that you spend with other Christians throughout your week where you're praying together, singing together, studying the Bible together, that shapes you. These are the rituals, the counter habits that will actually shape your life. And I know it sounds really dry and it's like, oh, you know, that sounds like the moral self-improvement program, but it's not. That is not a means of salvation. That is a response to salvation because keeping in step with the Spirit means you're following His lead. You're following His direction in your life. You're responding to something that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is already doing in your life. So to keep in step with the Spirit means that you take these counter habits, these counter rituals into your life and you allow them to shape you. And I acknowledge that takes a certain amount of discipline and diligence and things like that. But God, God wants not to keep you down, but, but, but to set you free through these things. The disciplines themselves do not create the fruit of the Spirit. The disciplines allow the Spirit to actually work in our lives by creating the opportunity, the platform for the Holy Spirit to grow that fruit in our lives. It's kind of like a dance. You know how a dance works? Somebody leads and the other person follows. So when Jenny and I were getting ready to be married, you know, we took dance lessons before our wedding. It was really fun. Um, there was a couple that we knew um, from seminary, and they were professional dance instructors, and they were really good. And I remember the very first lesson we show up, you know, they look at me and they go, Eric, you've got one job as the leader. Your job is to make Jenny shine. <laughs> Your job is to make Jenny shine. Well, how does that happen? So they start teaching us dances. And I remember one of the dances, I think it was the waltz, had a move called the underarm turn. And the underarm turn is like when it goes like this. I lift my hand, and that's Jenny's cue to step out, do a little circle, and then come back to face me. It's, it's, it's her cue to shine. But in order to do that, she has to follow my lead. Now, please understand something. I am not suggesting that that is a model for our marriage where I'm the Holy Spirit and she you know, has to follow my lead. That is not a model for necessarily for male-female relationships. I do want to suggest that this is a model for how the Holy Spirit works in your life. It's a dance. Your job is to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Allow yourself to be shaped by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus shine. Not you. The Holy Spirit's job is to make Jesus shine in your life. And the more Jesus shines, the more your loves are reordered. And the more your loves are reordered, the more your life is transformed.
that's hard. It's hard to trust God with that stuff. It's hard to submit the deepest desires of your heart to fulfill all the emptiness in your lives and all the ways that we try to secure those desires through our own self-effort. It's hard to submit that. It's hard to let go of that. I acknowledge that. But the more you do it, the more you allow the Holy Spirit to lead, the more your life is transformed. Let him lead. Let Jesus shine. Let your life be renewed. Let your life be transformed. Let's pray.